Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. I have so missed making podcast episodes over these past few months. Although I'm still in the middle of writing a book, I was feeling the itch to put out another episode. And boy, did I find just the perfect topic with the perfect timing. Tis the season for all you history buffs to dust off those bayonets, fill those canteens, and fall in line with your fellow Civil War reenactors. With the spring weather settling in, we're soon to hear the distant echoes of 19th century cannons, as young and old alike step back in time, filling the boots of those who once trod the hollowed grounds of Civil War battlefields. When most of us think of Civil War reenactments, we think of epic battles like Gettysburg, Antietam, and Bull Run, all locations decidedly east and south of the Buckeye State. No such battles were fought within Ohio's borders, right? No soldiers clad in blue and gray clashed atop our soil, true? At least that's what I assumed before researching today's topic. I couldn't have been more wrong. Perhaps an untold number of lingering spirits would like us all to know this assumption is false. For as you're about to learn, a number of Confederate and Union soldiers fought their last battle on the northern bank of the Ohio River on July 19, 1863. I'm talking about the Battle of Buffington Island in Ohio's own Meigs County. The tiny unincorporated town of Portland lies on the Ohio River. Comprised of maybe two dozen homes, this hamlet is easy to miss amid these Appalachian hills. Most passers-by speed through town on State Route 124, the Ohio River Scenic Byway which runs parallel to the river. For those paying close attention, a bold sign right off the highway announces the Buffington Island Battlefield Memorial Park. This four-acre park, managed by the Ohio Historical Society, contains many plaques and monuments which tell the story of the one and only Civil War battle fought in the state of Ohio. Locals have long told tales of the unexpected sightings of ghostly soldiers who patrol the floodplain which runs along the river. One Portland resident, a young mother, woke one July morning to make her kids breakfast, as she did every morning. When it came time to wash the dishes, she absentmindedly stared out the window above the sink. From under a pine tree in their backyard materialized an old man in a gray uniform. His scraggly beard and exhausted expression left her mesmerized as hot water kept filling the sink. They caught each other's eyes, and for a brief moment, he turned to walk down their driveway and up onto State Route 124. She kept sight of him as he continued walking, maybe 30 feet, until the image of him faded into nothingness. Even more remarkable, a year later, again in July, this woman's husband and children spotted the same uniformed man in their backyard. However, this time, he was leading a brown and white horse. 
His tall boots and a large brimmed hat were plainly visible. They watched from a distance as the soldier and his horse walked behind their detached garage, never appearing on the other side. All at once, the group rushed behind the garage. Arriving in seconds, they found nothing. The soldier and his horse had somehow disappeared. Besides these two accounts, some residents have heard the pounding of hooves as though a regiment of cavalry just arrived from out of nowhere. Others report the much more subtle but unmistakable jingle of a harness and a distant whinnying. Beyond these disembodied sounds, visitors to the Memorial Park often spot spherical lights which hover over the ground, bouncing and swaying. They're most commonly seen traveling up the large mound in the center of the park, as though beckoning visitors to come follow. This is just a brief summary of the unusual experiences had by locals and visitors alike to this curious yet nondescript spot on Ohio's southern border. As with most Ohio folklore episodes, we find that fantastic tales such as these tend to grow from a profound history of the place. This is very much true for today's location. So let's dive a little deeper. Let's see what can be known of this place. Let's consider what the spirits might be telling us. Less than a mile downriver from Portland stands the park's namesake, Buffington Island. Although this small, tear-shaped parcel of untamed land stands close to the Ohio bank, it's officially part of West Virginia. Protected under the Ohio River's Islands National Wildlife Refuge, this tiny island has been spared development of any sort. It basically looks as it did during the Civil War era, covered in dense trees and wildlife. No battle actually took place on the island itself, which is confusing, I'll admit. Why then did the battle come to be named the Battle of Buffington Island? To answer that question, we'll need to consider a bit of backstory. Come wonder with me, back in time to June 1863. We'll be traveling farther south, deeper into the Smoky Mountains, toward Sparta, Tennessee. There, the notorious general, John Hunt Morgan, accepted orders from his commanding officer to lead his cavalry unit of nearly 2,500 men on a diversionary mission into the borderland of Kentucky. The aim was to divert the attention of the Union Army of the Ohio. Another goal was to stir up support from Confederate sympathizers living in Kentucky. Publicly, the brash and daring General Morgan accepted the mission. Privately, he confided to his colleagues of plans for a bold raid into Union territory. He believed it high time that ordinary citizens of the Union start to feel the sting and terror of war. Frustrated with the lack of bold offensive strategies from his superior officers, Morgan would take events into his own hands. This despite offering his word to General Bragg that under no circumstances would he cross the Ohio River into enemy territory. For the first couple weeks after receiving orders, Morgan played by the rules, running amuck through Kentucky towns and villages. And in truth, 
his men were often welcomed and cheered on by the locals. Yet on occasion, he found resistance. Such had happened during a six-hour skirmish in Lebanon, which resulted in the death of his younger brother, Thomas Morgan, on their final charge. Morgan's once affable mood, built on successive easy victories, turned into an aggrieved rage. This is the spark which ignited what's known today as the fabled John Hunt Morgan's Raid, a bloodthirsty, chaotic assault by nearly 2,500 Confederate cavalrymen, the first and only of its kind, into Union territory. Turning sharply north, Morgan's unit tore through Louisville and the towns which surrounded it. It was all part of a scorched-earth policy to plunder forward, across the Ohio River. And with the aid of spies that managed clever acts of subterfuge, including faked telegraph messages purporting just where and when they'd breached the river, they'd finally find a way to make it across. Morgan's unit, which had then decreased to 1,800 men, would finally succeed. Crossing the Ohio would mean commandeering two steamboats at Bradenburg, Kentucky. They did so and landed on the northern Indiana bank. It was July 8th, yet 11 days before this rowdy group of rebels would spill blood at the Battle of Buffington Island. The Trail of Mayhem and Terror started in Harrison County, Indiana. A motley crew of local militia were no match for this seasoned cavalry who made short work of these poorly trained civilians. Morgan would lead his men eastward, toward the urban center of Cincinnati, and Major General Burnside's federal troops who were stationed there. On the way, Morgan's men killed civilians, including one Lutheran minister. They stole horses and took other civilians hostage in order to extort their loved ones for cash and other supplies. They destroyed bridges and train depots. In some towns, they burnt buildings indiscriminately. They'd wiped warehouses clean of food supplies, more than Morgan's men themselves could eat, just to dispose of it along the way, leaving the food to rot on the side of the road as they plundered forward. The raid would enter Ohio on July 13th. Ohioans had heard of the atrocities through southern Indiana and were terrified at what would come next. The Union's General Burnside would declare martial law within Cincinnati itself. All business was shuttered as men of fighting age were called to arms. General Morgan caught word of the preparations for his arrival and took a more northerly route, crossing the Ohio border at the town of Harrison. Only after crossing into Ohio did they start facing real resistance from federal troops. Some had been stationed nearby at Camp Denison. For the first time since starting the rogue operation, General Morgan was in retreat, looking for a way to get back into friendlier territory. He knew of the natural ford at Buffington Island. A layer of rock created a ridge across the river bottom, which, during drier months, was dependably shallow. A unit of men and horses could easily wade across the Ohio at this landmark. General Burnside intuited Morgan's plans. He'd order General Edward Hobson and General Henry Judah to lead columns of federal troops against the rebel unit. In addition, gunships were dispatched out of Cincinnati, upriver to the supposed spot 
where Morgan would make the desperate attempt to return south. A third regiment was dispatched out of Marietta to secure the ford. Just as expected, Morgan and his men would arrive on the evening of July 18th. The river had swollen from recent rains, making a nightly crossing especially dangerous. He'd decide to wait till dawn to make the crossing. For dozens of Morgan's men, this would prove a deadly mistake. Let's take this moment to learn a little more about this battle from a young man who knows it well. Donnie Jones is the current chairman of the Buffington Island Battlefield Preservation Foundation. This group's mission is to educate the public on the historical significance of Ohio's Civil War battlefield. A kind of living historian, Donnie enjoys partaking in Civil War reenactments throughout the region. His passion for preserving this bit of cultural heritage is clear, and I'm proud to share his knowledge with you today. I'll include links in the show notes for the Foundation's website, as well as Donnie's YouTube channel, called The Uniformed Historian. For any of you listeners who are listening in May 2022, you just might have the unique chance to experience the Buffington Island battlefield up close and personal. In two weeks, the weekend of May 20th through the 21st, the Foundation is putting on a Living History Weekend there at the site. You can come experience the daily life of a Civil War soldier. Activities will include weapons and firing demonstrations, period-correct camp cooking, authentic military drills, and original artifacts all on display. And who knows, while you're having all that fun, you might just catch something out of the corner of your eye, the misty shape of a weary rebel soldier longing for a way home. But for now, let's consider what can be known of this place from one Donnie Jones. Come, hear his story. Buffington Island has always been a little bit interesting to me because it was uh, it was a raid by John Hunt Morgan, and that's usually as far as people really look into it. Um, they look into the fact that his objective was to divert Union resources um, from the Western Theater, where the Confederacy was losing pretty badly. And uh, the thing about it that not too many people realize is John Hunt Morgan actually did that against direct orders. He was not supposed to make that raid, and his superiors were not happy with him. Right. Yeah, quite the uh, intriguing story that I have to say, you know, I did a cha- you know, a class of Ohio history in eighth grade, and they never mentioned anything about uh, Morgan or Buffington Island. And when I stumbled on it just accidentally, I was like really surprised that it, it's not mm-hmm. better known. It's, it's quite a uh, dramatic story. Yeah, it really is. I mean, the fact that you've got, you know, cavalry, infantry, artillery, and of all things, naval boats involved in this battle, you know, and you don't really think about the Navy, you know, when you're inland with a state that's landlocked, you think about, you know, the the Union blockade out in the ocean, you don't really think about them coming down the Ohio River. Yeah, I mean, if it was, um, you know, a story you read in a novel or something, you'd think, okay, that's that's just, they're making that up to make it all extreme and engaging. But this has actually really happened. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of a lot of people don't even know a battle happened this far north, um, mm-hmm. at least not at this part of the, of the country. 
Yeah, it's um, uh, it's the only significant battle that happened in Ohio, which I'm sure you already know. But what's uh, even more interesting to me personally is the fact that uh, my ancestors' um, regiment, the 13th West Virginia Infantry, um, I guess maybe I should back up a little bit. The way that I yeah. initially even learned about the Battle of Buffington Island was the fact that the 13th West Virginia Infantry was present, and nobody talks about their involvement because they were not actually part of the battle. What they actually did is they were on the West Virginia side of the river, and their objective was to be scattered along the riverbank to make sure that John Hunt Morgan's troops didn't try to cross back across the river at any given time. And after the fighting was done, they they were actually tasked with coming across the river and loading up all of the Confederate prisoners onto that steamboat that was headed for Cincinnati and then ultimately took them to Camp Douglas. Okay, the prisoner of war camp? Yes. I see. Yeah. So that was your entry into it because you have uh, an ancestor that was involved in that. Well, not necessarily my own ancestor, but it's my ancestral regiment. Um, my ancestors okay. in the 13th did not enlist until September of 1863, but their friends and such were there before them. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, and so that's what first kind of uh, got you interested in learning more about it. Um, and so for my listeners who've not been to the location, can you describe what it feels like to be there and what it looks like, how it feels? Well, to be perfectly honest with you, you wouldn't even know that it was a battlefield unless it was for all the markers and the interpretive signage that's already there. I mean, you would get there and there's, you know, a couple of picnic shelters. It's a great place to take your dogs for a walk. I mean, you can easily spend a couple of hours just eating your lunch or your dinner or whatever and then taking a walk around the park there. And uh, eventually, we're hoping to secure more of that land um, so that we can extend the park and have even more interpretive signs and trails to walk on. But right now, it's a couple of picnic shelters, and you can, of course, visit the Indian burial mound that's there. Um, there's, you know, restroom facilities for, you know, when you got to do what you got to do. And uh, there's, you know, markers all over the place that you can go learn about the battle from. It's really a nice place to go spend a, a pretty afternoon if you have the time to spare. I see. So it's a good start. It's um, a lot of information for people who just probably have no idea. They're driving through, um, and they see all these uh, historical markers. And But there are plans to, to expand the space as well. You're hoping to encapsulate more of what the battlefield actually was. Is that right? Yes. I mean, it was actually a running battle because, like I said, John Hunt Morgan was trying his hardest to get his troops back into what they considered friendly soil, and they were just riding as hard as they could to get away from the pursuing federal troops. So really, the Battlefield Park is only a small piece of the story. I mean, that whole road that you drive to get there was essentially part of the battle because they were just trying to hightail it out of there as fast as they could. But it was at Buffington Island, not too far from where the park is today, that the vast majority majority of John Hunt Morgan's troops were captured. I see. Yeah. Um, and so the, the site of the memorial, the park, um, is where most of the battle took place. And it wasn't, the battle didn't happen on the islands. Um, that's correct, right? 
Yes, that's correct. And that's that's one of the more interesting things about it because you hear about, you know, different battles having different names. Like the Union would typically call, you know, like, for example, the Battle of Antietam. The Union named it because of Antietam Creek, but the Confederates would call it Sharpsburg because that was the nearest town. And then when you come to Buffington Island, the name just doesn't make any sense because if they'd named it appropriately, it would have been the Battle of Portland Bottom. Ah, right. And so, for some reason, somebody picked the name Buffington Island because that's a landmark that's close by, uh, mm -hmm. and that's what stuck. Yeah, exactly. I guess you couldn't really call it the Battle of the Ohio River because that's a, a pretty big you know, place, but yeah. Buffington Island was the next best thing they could choose from. Yeah, and I did read, too, just to kind of tie it together, I think, that uh, the natural underneath the, the riverbed or on the riverbed um, is what makes it a, a good fording place so it's shallow mm -hmm. so the island is a natural outcropping of that the, the bedrock that comes up closer mm -hmm. to the surface of the water um, yes, so I think that's that why is. Morgan was coming to that place because he was trying to, to ford the river Right. Yes. Yes, that's correct. He was trying to get across back into what was Virginia at the time, and he just uh, couldn't do it because of those Union gunboats. They just kept pursuing him, and the Union Army was in pursuit of him, and they just kept cutting him off and cutting him off and cutting him off until about a, about less than a week after the Battle of Buffington Island when they finally captured him just a little bit further north. Oh, yes, after he created so much chaos through southern Indiana and all all up and out. I can't remember how many miles it was that they went in total, but um, yeah, it's just a, a crazy story, um, right? And then I think that he went to the Ohio Penitentiary, but then escaped from yes, there. Yeah, that is that is correct. He did manage to escape. Yeah, for sure. So um, yeah, it's, there's a, there's a lot of uh, dramatic history too about the battle itself and how many troops converged on this one spot that was really pretty remote at the time and not many people mm -hmm. that lived there. So that must have been pretty terrifying for the locals. Absolutely. Um, and not much has really changed. It's still a pretty remote place. A lot of people don't even know how to get there unless you know what you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. So Portland itself is a really tiny town, right? I don't think it's incorporated or anything. Uh, no, it's not incorporated or anything like that. I mean, it's just a lot of farmland, a lot of, you know, just farmers and residential areas. You, you, Like I said, you'd never even guess it was a battlefield unless you just knew it. Yeah, especially with that much time that's passed. And um, it's pretty uh, nondescript country roads. And then as far as any uh, reputation for unusual experiences, do you know, do people talk about it being haunted or... Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's all kinds of talk about spirits and paranormal activity in the area. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm talking with one of our home care aides. Um, she lives yeah. in the vicinity of the battlefield, and I didn't get too many details from her, but she did tell me that several of her neighbors and herself have experienced some different things in the area. And it just kind of makes you wonder, you know, what, who is it? You know, what exactly is causing the haunting? And I have two theories. I'm going to say that it's probably due to the spirits of the people who were killed there, but also the spirits of the Native Americans who are buried in the burial mound there. Do you know any more about the, the tribe involved or 
Well, I can't say that I know too much about the tribe and such that was involved, but what I can tell you as far as the spirits and such go, um, the next thing I was going to say is a lot of people don't realize this, and I hope I get the year right, but I believe that the mound itself was actually somehow destroyed in history, and it was actually reconstructed to its original appearance in its original spot in the 1930s. And I think oh. that that might have something to do with the spirits there, the the bodies of the Native American Indians who were disturbed by whatever caused the mound to be destroyed, and, and now they're not where they were supposed to be. So as far as you know, the mound that's there at the park was uh, basically a replica that was built in nineteen in the 30s, 1930s. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's my understanding, um, at least among the people that I've spoken with about it, but it, it's in the original spot, though. Yeah, okay. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, potential fertile ground for spirits to roam, I guess, or to have reason to roam when you think about the um, the terrible nature of war and, you know, how it causes sudden and violent death. And, um, you know, it's hard to know what the history is exactly with the Native American background there. Um, but, yeah, so, so it does have a reputation um, in the area for folks seeing unusual things and associating spiritual activity with the place. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think that you had mentioned, um, of course, you, you maybe you just haven't had enough, enough time to spend there to experience those things yourself, but that you have had some unusual experience other places. Oh, absolutely. I've had the the creepiest place at nighttime, for me at least. Um, I don't know how it's not the number one haunted spot in West Virginia, but I think it should be the number one spot. It's always in the top ten, though, is the Droop Mountain West Virginia Battlefield. I'm not kidding. Every time I go there, something weird happens. Um, The creepiest instance that I think ever happened to me um, happened, I was still in high school at the time, so this would have been the late 2000, like 2006, 2007, somewhere in that ballpark. I was 16 or 17 at the time, and uh, about 10, 11 other people will attest to this because they all saw it as well. They were there with me. Um, Are you familiar with what a tactical is in the reenacting community? No. Okay, so a tactical is kind of like war games, if you will. Um, It's not anything scripted. It's literally, it's like a game for the reenactors. There's no spectators. It's just the Union troops against the Confederate troops, and there might be an objective that they have to accomplish, or they just have to find the enemy and destroy them. I mean, it's just something fun for the reenactors to do. We were we were doing a tactical before the actual scripted battle for the spectators later that day. Um, I happened to be portraying a Confederate soldier at the time. I was with the 36th Virginia Infantry, who historically was not there, but that was our reenacting group's name at the time. And we were out essentially on recon, um, if you want to go by the modern terminology. Um, the historical terminology would be skirmishers, and our objective was to find the enemy, figure out where they were, and figure out how to destroy them and report it back to the rest of our force so that we could make it happen. So we're out in the middle of the woods, combing through the woods, trying to find the enemy, and we finally found them. And they were kneeled down behind a downed tree and some brush, and all you could really see were the tops of their hats and the tops of their muskets where they had their bayonets fixed. 
And they were looking at us, and we were looking at them, and they never shot at us. So our captain at the time, he says, well, let's open it up on them, see how many of them there are. So we start shooting, and they just keep looking at us. And we probably shot, you know, five or six times a person, and they never fired back at us. So our captain says, all right, form up, fix bayonets, we're going to charge them. So we fixed our bayonets, we formed up. We dropped our rifles and we started to advance towards them and we start giving the rebel yell and we get right up to them and there's nobody there. So we're looking around trying to figure out where these guys went to. Well, they didn't go that way because that's swampy. We would have heard them splashing around. They didn't go up that hill. We would have seen them. And we're just kind of puzzled where these guys went to. And then we hear off in the distance, boom, 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 boom. And we're thinking... Well, what's that? So we take off running in the direction of the sound, and when we get there, there's all the reenactors. And we're not sure who we were shooting at, but it wasn't anybody we came to the event with. Well, that really kind of makes the hair stand up on your yeah. back of the neck. Yeah. yeah, and like I said, there's about 10 or 11 other people that can attest to this. They were all there, and they all saw the same thing. Ah. Uh. It can't make me help but to wonder if it was some of the Ohio troops that were there, because there were several uh, Ohioans that fought in that battle, both in Ohio regiments and in West Virginia units. One of the uh, better-known German regiments that were there um, was the 28th Ohio, which was organized in Cincinnati under Augustus Moore. And uh, they were a completely German-speaking unit from Cincinnati, and uh, they had a pretty significant fight there. And I just I can't help but wonder if maybe it was them. You know, um, it, it really is intriguing because you think about the emotions involved when you're reenacting and something so um, just genuine as what you're doing. You're just mm-hmm. um, trying to ex- explore what it felt like to to be in a battle as much as you can. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you didn't have live live ammo or anything. But, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it does make you wonder if spirits do exist, you know, how they potentially would really be reactive to, to something as close to, you know, replicating what they went through uh, right there in front of them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the spirits can absolutely get confused when you're out there in the middle of a field in their clothing, eating their type of food, their rations. You know, you're standing out on a picket duty in the middle of the woods, not not a modern thing in sight. I mean, I'm sure that they get confused. And the the kind of uh, spiritual activity attached to Civil War era, you know, is pretty well known. And you think about, like, Gettysburg and other really iconic uh battlefields it's it's so well popularized um you know for tourists and everything so um yeah it makes you makes you think that you know what's the likelihood that you know these kinds of experiences could be happening different locations around you know the country yeah apparently you've had some encounters yourself (laughs) oh yeah more than we have time to sit here and talk about to be perfectly honest with you would you venture to guess? I know this is a big uh, hypothetical question, but um, you know, if spirits do remain there at Buff- Buffington Island sites, uh, what their struggles may be, or what the forces that makes them linger at that place, with what you know um, about. 
Well, yeah, that would definitely be a, a big if question, a big speculation. But I'd have to say probably a couple of things. The first one being that somebody's life was cut short when it wasn't supposed to, and the spirit just wasn't quite ready to go yet. And I think, you know, they just weren't ready, so they're still here. And the other thing that I would venture to say would be the presence of unmarked graves in the area, which we know do exist, but they're unmarked, so how do you know where they are? And I would imagine that that's probably got something to do with it as well, spirits that just want their graves marked, but nobody knows where they are. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that possibility, but I'm I'm sure in the, the fog of war that, you know, people die and, um, you know, that they don't have the maybe capacity for proper burials and enough coffins to go around and everything. So it's, um, you know, a, a pauper's grave is probably pretty common in that situation. Yep, absolutely. I mean, there's all kinds of stories about post-battle burials that were just done to get the bodies out of the summer sun from, you know, decomposing faster and, you know, making people's farmlands smell bad because that's what you really got to think about is the locals that are left behind after the armies have retreated or advanced onward. I mean, they're the ones that are left to clean up the mess. So they don't know who these people are. They just know that there's a dead soldier in their front yard and that's where they need to plant their corn. So we're going to move him over here, bury him with a simple wooden cross that since then has been lost to time, and now there's a grave that nobody knows where it is. Yeah, I've never really considered that um, chapter of war. And I don't know that many people do. You know, there's so much focus on the, the glory of the battle. Um, and then there's this terrible, awful situation that's left over for whoever happens to be living there. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Hard to even imagine. Um, and then, you know, I had read about the Buffington Island Battlefield Preservation Foundation. Yeah, um, Buffington and, Island Battlefield Preservation Foundation. That's correct. Gotcha, yeah. And are you a member of that? Uh, yes, actually, I'm the I'm the interim chairman at the moment, but I was a member to start with, and they are uh, last chairman resigned, and I just sort of agreed to step in until the time comes around for another vote to be held. So I'm just kind of keeping the machine going until uh, either they vote for me or they vote for somebody else. I see. Okay. Um, and how would you describe the the primary mission of the foundation? Our primary mission easily is to preserve and protect Buffington Island Battlefield. Um, we, the last thing we want to see is, you know, another Dollar General be built where people fought and died. We don't want to see a new housing development go on sacred ground. You know, we're there to try to keep the battlefield in as pristine condition as we possibly can so that it can be studied, it can be learned from, and it can be appreciated by future generations. And the next goal would be to somehow make the battle a little bit more easily understood by the future generations by installing the proper markers and informational signs so that people who decide to go there for a picnic can wander the field and take something away from it as well, a little bit more knowledge. I love that. Uh, that whole cause. Uh, what a great uh, effort to be part of. I love that attitude. I really do. Um, and so, you know, the the group is making an effort now to purchase the, the larger section of land so it can encompass more of the battlefield 
And um, what are ways that my listeners could contribute to that if they choose? Well, well, if they want to help out the cause, um, the first way that I would have to recommend would be to become a member of the Buffington Island Battlefield Preservation Foundation. Um, you don't necessarily have to join the board members, the executive officers and such, but if you want to become a card-carrying member, um, you can go to our website and uh, you can become a member. It's uh, $10 for an individual, $15 for a family membership. Um, you can become a member that way, or if you don't want to become a member, you can send monetary donations via PayPal or our GoFundMe page. Um, and if you want to bypass us entirely right now but help us secure the battlefield property, it's 117 acres that are at risk right now, which is a pretty sizable chunk of land. It's uh, located right between the park where it sits today and the Portland Community Center. Um, it's pretty easy to spot when you go there because you see where the grass hasn't been cut and such. But that's land that we're trying to secure. And if you want to contribute more directly, you can go through the American Battlefield Trust. Um, they have agreed to match donations $13 for every $1 that's donated, which is remarkable. It's incredible. And uh, yeah. their goal, we have to raise $50,000 to secure the land at Buffington Island, but the American Battlefield Trust is trying to do their fundraiser to save not just one but four battlefields, and their goal is just over $200,000 to secure all of those battlefields. So I recommend folks go that route for the time being. Oh, yeah, that makes complete sense. And I'll have to put those uh, links in the show notes. Um, and do you know, have there been archaeological digs for uh, you know relics and such in those areas? Um, I do know of a few people that have been relic hunters for years that have found artifacts, you know, fragments of shells. And I heard a rather interesting story several years back. Um, it wasn't at the battlefield, but it was near the battlefield. And uh, there were some people that were chopping down a tree for some reason, and their uh, chainsaw blade snapped on them like it just broke on them they couldn't figure out what the problem was so they cut the tree down a little bit lower they had actually hit a shell that had probably come from one of the union gunboats and it broke their chainsaw it was lodged that deep into the tree and it had just grown around it over the years oh that's crazy so yeah. people are finding things like that all the time. But, um, you know, as far as archaeological surveys and such go, I do know that they have done some in the past. Um, you'll have to forgive me. I do not remember the dates of the archaeological excavations, but they have done them in the past. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I would think, you know, if you hit the right spot, you could probably find quite a bit, especially in terms of, um, you know, spent ammunition or or other things, you know, brass buttons and, you know, a lot of things that may have survived all that time. Oh, yeah. We may never know what bits of debris from the battle remain buried under Ohio soil. Such artifacts, if they exist, may symbolize how the battle itself has somehow disappeared from so many Ohioans' memories today. What a treasure it has been to bring you this story. I enjoy unearthing sagas like this that help us realign ourselves with our shared history, as well as the spiritual forces which seem to remain on these hallowed grounds. The embattled spirits which are supposedly spotted here may have a message for us to consider. What does it mean to get caught up in the fog of war? 
to fight for a country that's splitting at the seams? What drives men toward depraved acts of cruelty and terror? What does one reap after embarking on such a dastardly quest? There's plenty of reasons for unrest in the souls of those not yet quite departed, who linger in the seemingly bland and unremarkable floodplain along the Ohio River. Perhaps one day they'll find their way home. Let's hope we all do in the end. This concludes today's episode on the Battle of Buffington Island. I hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please rate, review, and subscribe to Ohio Folklore on your chosen podcast platform. You can also find Ohio Folklore at ohiofolklore.com and on Facebook. And as always, keep wondering. <laughs>